most of us, most adults never get the chance to save someone's life. Here are young kids, I think the earliest one is 11 years old, who saved another person's life. I mean, that's, that's tremendous. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, author John Boileau. Despite what servers keep telling me, my ability to choose an item from a menu should not amaze them nor should my choice of beer inspire awe. Yes, in the dictionary of overused and devalued words, amazing and awesome are in the very first chapter. Luckily, John Boileau has redeemed those two perfectly good adjectives because they precisely describe the boys and girls he profiles in his latest book, Amazing Atlantic Canadian Kids, Awesome Stories of Bravery and Adventure. John Boileau, welcome to Book Me. Thank you very much, Costas. This is your 14th book, but your first for young readers. Why now in your writing career? Well, it uh, came about in a rather strange way because it wasn't my idea originally. I was uh, serving on the Centennial Planning Committee for Number 2 Construction Battalion in uh, 2015. Their centennial was in, in 2016, the famous Black Battalion that was formed here in Nova Scotia and went overseas. And uh, Richard Rudnicki had been commissioned by the Army Museum to create a drawing of the Black Battalion overseas. So he and I were at this meeting together, and after the meeting, we knew of each other, but we hadn't really met. Mm -hmm. And he came up to me and said, John, how'd you like to write a book with me? I said, sure, Richard, what's it about? <laughs> and he had this idea for writing a story about 15 Nova Scotian boys and girls. I would do the stories, and he would uh, do the illustrations. So I proposed it to uh, to some Nimbus folks at a, at a reception, actually, and they, they were keen on the idea. But Whitney Moore and the editor came back and said, let's broaden the scope. Instead of just Nova Scotia, let's include all four Atlantic provinces, which, of course, was very attractive to me because it gave me a larger audience and also a, a larger base of kids to draw upon. Now, very sadly, Richard subsequently had to withdraw from the whole project because he had committed himself to doing a mural in the Army Museum and illustrating a graphic novel, uh, which required some 400 illustrations. And then he reversed the trend and uproots and moved from Halifax <laughs> to the country, to Port Royal. So I felt very bad about this, and I said, but Richard, it was your idea. He said, don't worry about it. I have no strings attached to it. You just go and find the book, or do the book, rather, and Nimbus found another artist for me. So long about way of coming to it. But that being said, the, the story of uh, Two Battalion is in the book. Can you the tell us a little bit about that, along with his artwork? That's exactly right. And I wanted to pay homage to, Rich, to Richard because of his idea for having the book. And I know that the, the publisher initially was a bit worried about it because they said, well, his style is different from the other drawings we have in the book. And I said, I really don't think that should be a factor. But yes, Number 2 Construction Battalion uh, was formed uh, to go overseas uh, and fight originally. Uh, black men were not allowed to join the, for the forces for the uh, Canadian Expeditionary Force in the First War. Technically, they were, but most unit COs turned them down. Uh, then the, the black population in support of whites got together, petitioned the government, and so the number two construction battalion was authorized. It was sent overseas. It became a national unit before I went overseas, recruited right across the country, as well as a number of Americans and soldiers from the uh, British West Indies. And then it served in France uh, as a part of the Canadian Forestry Corps doing essential war work to support the frontline troops. 
They were cutting down trees. They were cutting down trees. They were milling, sawing, uh, shipping it to the front. They were also repairing roads, repairing light railways, uh, all essential work to get supplies to the front. Now, we don't think about lumber or wood as being a very important commodity of war, but actually it was, especially in the first war. It was used for trenches, for revetting trenches. It was used for duckboards to get artillery pieces and mortars forward into the front lines. It was used to keep soldiers from slipping off into the mud at Passchendaele and prevent them from drowning. But and it was used for boxes for ammunition, so heavy use of timber. But given the, the strictures you put on your own book, all of the children you mention are under 16. Were there children of that age in in that battalion? Oh, yes, and, and Thomas Goffigan, the, 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 the individual I talk about, joined when he was 15, uh, went overseas, served his whole time overseas with the unit, came back, uh, and by the time he was discharged, discharged, I think he was not yet 18. And he had served overseas for a couple of years, and he actually, to give you an indication of, of how small he was, he grew four inches when he was overseas. <laughs> <laughs> of all the times and places to put on a growth spurt. Exactly. Now, speaking of other people younger than 16, you also plumb the, uh, the area of, of mythology. Tell us about Mac. Right. Well, I thought in setting up the story, I wanted to emphasize the point that storytelling has been a part of human culture since cavemen, as far as we know, uh, telling stories around the fire and that sort of thing. And of course, we have some very important uh, books that are part of children literature uh, from your day and mine, things like Treasure Island. Uh, you get later and you get the whole Harry Potter series. Then you get uh, the Hunger Games and that sort of thing. So I really wanted to show that and we kind of took the upper ages as 16, although a couple may have creeped over it by the time they finished their particular story. But I really wanted to show uh, the wide range of ages across the four provinces. And what's the story of Mac? Oh, and the story, yeah, I got off track there. Well, the story of Mac, I want to, as I say, the link to storytelling from the earliest days were these individuals from mythology. So, um, I spoke to my good friend Don Julian, who's the uh, the uh, CEO of the Confederation of uh, of uh, Mainland Mi'kmaq, and said, "I need some uh, Mi'kmaq legends that are about young kids." Well, there are a lot of them, but quite a few of them involve animals representing humans. So, but I want to tell a story that didn't involve an animal becoming a human because of the various totems of the clans. So, I found the story of Mac. Uh, wrote it up, ran it by the elders uh, with uh, up in uh, Truro with Don Julian, and then we published the story. So, yeah, Mac is a good story, and I think it was a good one to lead off, even though it is a part of myth or fiction, because it shows kids how they can improve themselves, and I think this is important. And and it doesn't really correspond to you know some of the the very similar stories we we see about children coming out of Europe. It's a it's an entirely different kind of narrative. Yes, it is, and I, uh, you know, and it it shows close relationship between also young people and, as the Mi'kmaq call them, the elders, as we would call them, the grandparents, etc. We won't give any uh, more than that away. Okay, we'll hold it there. <laughs> Listen, uh, given retired Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire's Child Soldiers Initiative, uh, designed to end recruiting and using children in conflicts. Uh, I must admit I was surprised to see you had a chapter entitled Boy Soldiers. G give us the context for that decision. Right. Well, a lot of people assume that child soldiers and the boy soldiers that I'm talking about are one and the same. They're not. 
uh, within the British system and within the continental system and also the American system, uh, well into the 19th century and even into the early 20th century, people we would call underage, in other words, under 18, were enrolled. In fact, in the British and Canadian system, we enrolled boys as drummers, buglers, farriers' assistants, uh, and musicians. Now, these young people were taken into a regimented military system, clothed, fed, drilled, trained, put in barracks. That is entirely different from the child soldiers, which is happening in Africa, South America, Southeast Asia. These are ragtag kids who are brought in and forced to do various things to fight, to uh, spread drugs, to have sex, whatever. Completely different concept than a regimented boy soldier as Romeo Dallaire's child soldiers. It's uh, interesting that the word hero comes from Greek mythology. Uh, it was the name of a woman. Uh, and, and one female hero you highlight in your book was a very young woman in uh, Illamore, Newfoundland, Anne Harvey. Could you read us her story? I will. This section is called Island of Death. Teenager Anne Harvey lived with her family in a small fishing community on Illamore off the southwest coast of the colony of Newfoundland. Early one morning in July 1828, Anne awoke to a raging storm. She climbed to the top of a nearby hill and could barely make the shape of a two-masted wooden sailing ship. It had been driven out of the rocks and was breaking up as waves smashed over it. Anne rushed home and woke her father and younger brother, Tommy. The three of them, along with their big Newfoundland dog named Harry Mann, set off in a dory toward the doomed ship. When they got as near to the ship as they dared, they sent Harry Mann through the huge waves to the ship. It was a Scottish brig called Dispatch, which had been carrying Irish immigrants from Londonderry to Quebec City. When the dog arrived, some sailors tied a rope around his middle and sent him back to the dory. Then Anne, her father, and her brother were able to rig a line from the ship to a strong pole on the shore. This enabled the crew to make a breeches boy, a canvas seat suspended from the rope, to ferry stranded passengers over the water to land. In this way, Anne and her family rescued 163 passengers and crew, one by one, from the shipwreck. The governor of Newfoundland was so impressed by the Harvey's courage that he sent them 100 gold coins and presented a special medal to them. In 1985, the Canadian Ghost Guard vessel Anne Harvey was launched in Halifax. The ship is a search and rescue vessel and is capable of light icebreaking duties. Appropriately, Anne Harvey is assigned to the Coast Guard's Newfoundland region with its home port at St. John's. Since 2007, the town of Illomore has held an annual four-day festival known as Anne Harvey Days to commemorate and celebrate Anne's heroic deeds. She uh, certainly lives up to amazing and awesome. I think it, so, and it, it's quite uh, amazing to me, Costas, that when I wrote the book, I was blown away by the number of kids who saved lives. M most of us, most adults, never get the chance to save someone's life. Here are young kids, I think the earliest one is 11 years old, who saved another person's life. I mean, that's that's tremendous. And I guess not surprisingly, a lot of the rescues have to do with the waters around Atlantic Canada <laughs> that's because right. that's Welcome. what we have. Welcome to Atlantic Canada. Uh, you're only so far from the sea in any direction. And if you are far from the sea, you've got a river or a lake nearby. Your chapter on go-getters includes the story of Brooke Watson. I had never heard of Brooke Watson until the, your book, uh, who really should inspire any young person who suffers a, a physical accident today. Yeah, Brooke Watson is an interesting one because uh, in the forward to, in the introduction to the book, I mentioned a number of sources that I plumbed to get the various stories. 
Brooke Watson was actually a story I remember uh, growing up in, in Moncton in school in grade five or six. We had a book called Our New Brunswick Reader, and the story of Brooke Watson was in it. So Brooke Watson was uh, orphaned in the UK, came out to live with an uncle in Massachusetts. He got early on to sailing ships. His uncle went bankrupt while Brooke was away on a voyage. Brooke came back, found employment in the uh, Isthmus of Chignecto area, working for the British when the French were still on the New Brunswick side of the, uh, of the river. And uh, prior to this, on one of his trips in Havana Harbor, he was swimming. He was attacked two or three times by a shark. Uh, his shipmates finally got him out of the water, got him to a hospital. He should have died. He had about a 1% chance of survival due to the sanitary conditions at the time, the chance of infection. And the, lost, and the blood loss. And the blood loss, and he lost his leg uh, below the knee. He uh, had what was it called at the time, a peg leg, a wooden leg. He eventually rose to be the Lord Mayor of London, a member of Parliament, <laughs> the Commissioner General for the British Army. He was called the one-legged or the peg-legged commissary. A tremendous, amazing story. It is. I mean... To the point of unbelievability. <laughs> it's true. Except it's true. Your chapter on fighters underlines the fact that even young people who don't live into adulthood, like Becca Schofield, can really leave a mark. Yeah, I mean, Becca Schofield certainly is the most moving story in the book, and I, I believe it certainly will move a lot of readers to tears. I mean, this was a young girl growing up in Riverview, which is just across the river from my hometown of Moncton. Uh, she had a brain tumor. It was successfully treated. Then a short while later, I think it was four months, it came back. She was told it was inoperable. Instead of descending into a blue funk, she launched a program called Becca Told Me To, which was to do a random act of kindness, shovel someone's driveway, pick up groceries for a senior. One of the favorites was buy a cup of coffee at Tim Hortons for the person in line before you. Her movement became so inspired with the hashtag Becca told me to, it went completely around the world, Australia, Kuwait, Japan, and it's still carried on to this day. A very inspiring young lady who sadly succumbed to her brain cancer. We've certainly seen the international impact of Greta Thunberg on the climate crisis front, but in the Atlantic region, some young women who focused on environmental issues uh, that adults were ignoring uh, managed to bring about change. I'm thinking of uh, Rachel Brower and Stella Bowles in your book. Yeah, Stella Bowles is a tremendous story. In fact, uh, she has written uh, a book about her whole experience. So Stella was a young girl who lived on the, the La Havre River. She discovered one day that uh, there were 600 homes along the La Havre that were flushing their toilets daily, several times, directly into the river. There were no septic tanks. This was flushing stuff from the toilet right into the river. The so-called straight pipes. The straight pipes. Obviously, the river was quite polluted. She found out that there had been a committee trying to sort this out for years, but it required the cooperation of all three levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, and it was going nowhere. So she put up a big sign on the highway. 600 homes flushed their toilets directly into this river. Of course, the powers that be were very upset about this because it would have an impact on tourism, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, she got a retired uh, professor to help her sample water at four locations around the river. He showed her how to do proper testing. She produced the facts. The CBC got a hold of it and went viral. There were town meetings. And eventually, at the end of the day, all three levels of government agreed to replace, over a period of time, all the straight pipes with septics uh, for the various homeowners along the La Havre River. Very inspirational. But what would be the effect uh, of young children reading these true stories about 
people their age, do you think? Well, I think the biggest effect is they will now have role models. I think young kids need role models of their old of their own age rather. I I hate for people to use as their role models overpaid rock musicians, actors or athletes or athletes. Uh, and that's not the people that young folks should be aspire, aspiring to. These are people their own age from ordinary everyday backgrounds from right across the four Atlantic provinces who rose to the occasion and did something. And I, I'm glad uh, I really uh, enjoyed your introduction there about overuse of the words amazing and awesome. They really did something that was amazing and awesome. So I like young kids to, t to say, whoa, you know, I can do something amazing. And they won't throw around amazing and awesome so lightly anymore. <laughs> now they know how it's defined. Awesome is a standard word. I think it's replaced cool. <laughs> John, thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. And congratulations us. on the book. Thank you very much. John Boileau is the author of Amazing Atlantic Canadian Kids, Awesome Stories of Bravery and Adventure. Illustrations are by James Bentley with additional art by Richard Rudnicki. It's published by Nimbus. To catch any or all of the conversations I've had with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, go to bookmepodcast.ca and share the link with everyone you know who's a reader. Whenever we have a new interview ready, we post an alert on our Instagram account, you guessed it, at bookmepodcast, and please rate or review our podcast on your favorite download site. If you'd like to comment on a podcast like this one with John Boileau, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. Our producer is Robin Grant, and the amazing and awesome Lynn Fox is our recording engineer. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Music